Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, August 20th, 2023, we continue our series titled, Knowing Jesus, the Gospel of Luke. Today's sermon, Jesus is the One, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. Enjoy. We all have troubles. We all have difficulties. There are times that we have doubts. There are times that we pray with false expectations. There is all kinds of things. You know, the thing that I suffer from, which I'm pretty sure everyone else does too, is that I tend to want what I want when I want it, right? Uh, Myself and nearly 8 billion people on the earth all suffer from the same thing called sin. And, um, but when it comes to our time when we're, we're at a difficult place, when we're at a crossroad, um, maybe it's you're struggling with a prodigal or a wayward child, you know, who uh, just doesn't want to honor and glorify God in your house. Or maybe, uh, maybe it's a time where you have a close family member or friend that is sick or is dying um, and you find yourself praying because um, that's what we do. But sometimes we pray with these expectations of God that he's automatically, because I made my supplication, because I made my request known to him, that he's going to answer it the way that I want him to answer it. We know that that's not true intellectually. In fact, even Pastor Kyle from Scottsdale Bible came here and preached during our, our spiritual discipline series and talked about the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, right, in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I wish we could take time, hopefully maybe sometime in the future we'll, we'll talk about the Lord's Prayer and the our and the us and the as that's in there. Why do we pray to our Father, not my Father? Why do we, why do we pray to give us daily bread, not me daily bread? Because we're here to love God, we're here to love people. We do that together as a family, as followers of Christ. I can't encourage you enough to, uh, to take what Pastor Kevin talked about and join a small group and be a part of a community that wants to love you and allow you to love them. But sometimes our expectations are greater than that which is what is really God's will. You see, life itself is not about our will, it's about his. And when we don't get our way, we struggle with doubt, we struggle with difficulties. Why didn't God answer my prayer? Why isn't he uniting or restoring a broken relationship? What's going on in here and and is God really in control? Whether we're, we're praying or we're making our supplications known or we're crying out to God in a lament, every single one of those occurrences is for us to pray in the Lord's will, not ours. It leads us to places sometimes where we think that maybe, maybe God is up there, and I can assure you, he, he's, he's not up there contemplating what you prayed. He's not there contemplating, how am I going to deal with this problem or that problem? He is there and fulfilling his plan, his purpose, the very thing that he spoke into existence before the foundation of the world. God doesn't sit in heaven and say, man, I'm struggling today on the requests that are coming in. He doesn't sit there and say, oh man, I, I thought I had it all in control, but there's that, there's that guy Larry in Wisconsin who's got a really good thought and maybe we should change our direction on these things. 
It's not how God works. God is holy and he's sovereign. God works his will, his plan, his purposes out in our life. And it's true, right? We can look at Genesis 50, 20, and it, and it gives us that great example of Joseph when he comes face to face with his brothers years, years after they sold their younger brother into slavery, and he tells them, right, what, what you did for evil, God meant for good. Somehow God works concurrently through mystery on, on our wicked desires, but still brings about his plan and his purpose. I think that I struggle with purpose at times. I struggle with doubts. Is this really real? John the Baptist in our text today is in prison. And I'm sure he has prayers. And I'm sure he has expectations. He's probably not enjoying his situation where he's at at that particular moment. How do we live in these moments that we don't want, that we don't desire? Last week, Pastor Thomas talked to us about compassion, that as Jesus was going about his earthly ministry, he was responsible for the 100 square feet around him, and as he encountered people, the centurion and his servant, um, or the widow and her uh, deceased son. God showed action. It's not just that we feel compassion or I feel sorry or my heart goes out to someone. If there is no action on the compassion, then what you're experiencing is not actually compassion at all. It requires a response. Jesus is doing all these miracles as we looked at last week of healing the centurion servant and raising the, the, the son who was dead for the, for the widow, for it's all she had. Compassion without action isn't compassion. Thomas closed with verse 17 about this report about him, Jesus, how it was spreading through the whole, whole of Judea and all the surrounding countries. We know that in the past that we've seen that John the Baptist said, I must become less and he must become more. Well, Jesus is becoming more. He's becoming the household name. It was John the Baptist that was very much a household name. Everyone knew who John the Baptist was in that territory, in that era, in that time. But now Jesus is becoming a household name. And they're talking about his miracles and the things that he's doing and they're looking at him as, is this the Messiah? Is he the one? Or should we in fact be looking at somebody else? But let's pray before we jump into our text. Our Father and our God, oh Lord, your word um, at times is overwhelming, but it is our beacon of truth. It is the very thing that we turn to, not to our experience, not to our opinions, but Lord, to your word. Help us, Lord, to apply your word. I pray that your spirit today, if it be your will, that you would reflect something new in our hearts that would drive us closer to you, that we would grow in your grace, and that we would grow in a better understanding of your son. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So join me in Luke 7, verses 18 uh, and beyond into 35. I'm gonna break it into four groups here today, just four text sections, and then we'll talk about what that text session just said and we'll kind of summarize everything at the very end, so bear with me as we go through this. 
Luke 7, 18, it says, the disciples of John reported all these things, all the miracles that were taking place. And John, calling two of his disciples um, to him, sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Verse 20, and when the men had come to him, to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? A lot of people have opinions about this. I'm just gonna look at it at its face value. If John is asking this question, then John is asking the question with sincerity. Possibly John is in prison and he's experiencing something that isn't lining up for him, isn't matching with what John knows to be the word of God. But the disciples of John are reporting the miracles and the healings um, back to him. But John asks them to go to the Lord. Normally we would see a word here like Adonai, which, which talks about being master, go to the master go to the master rabbi, go to the guy who, who's been doing all these things. But here it's interesting because he uses a separate word. He uses the word Isus. Isus. If we looked at this in the Hebrew, it would mean Joshua, right? But here he's talking about Jesus in a different way. He's saying Yahweh saves. Go to Yahweh saves and ask him, are you the one or should we be looking for another? It's powerful language because in Hebrew culture, they wouldn't even say that word. They wouldn't say that name and let alone would they write it. This all-powerful name is an all-powerful God. But John says to him, go to Yahweh who saves and ask, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? But why is John the Baptist asking this question? Does John experiencing some doubts or does he have some sort of false expectation? In verse 21, this is what's happening. It says, in that hour, in that moment, he's saying, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. Tell him this. Tell him that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Oh, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I don't know if that last part is a bit of a rebuke, but he's concerned with those who are offended by him. And he's talking about it in the positive. He's saying, blessed are the ones who are not offended by me. So it's almost like a question back to John. Are you offended by me? What I like about this is that Jesus, in that hour, in that period of time, that moment of time, was validating who he is. He wanted them to see with absolute clarity that only God can do this. He gave quite a show of healing of disease and plagues and evil spirits, but he answers them this way, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
verse 23. If you go back in Luke chapter 4, you remember that Jesus, when he came out as the Messiah, when he told I am the Messiah, when he brought that forward, he was in his hometown. And he was in that hometown, Luke 4, verse 16. It says, and he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written. And he recites... Isaiah 61, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he, God, has anointed me to proclaim what? Good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But what was the response of the leaders in that region when Jesus came out and quoted Isaiah 61? They understood what he was saying, that he was proclaiming that he is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 61, and that he is the guy who will be fulfilling these things. They were offended by him, and wrath came upon them, and they began to push him out of the synagogue, and they wanted to push him towards the town cliff so that they could push him off the cliff. They're highly offended by what Jesus has just communicated. They liked what he said, but they didn't like who he was that he was saying. They loved Isaiah 61, but they did not have a good idea as to whom they were talking to. So, what do you think John was expecting from Jesus while he was in prison? Is it possible that John was in prison at the time and maybe he had some unanswered prayer or false expectations? Maybe it's possible that he thought that Jesus, who's doing all these things, would also set the captive who is in prison himself free. Isn't that the promise of Isaiah 61? That you're going to come after those who are oppressed. You're going to come after those who are imprisoned. You're going to come to those who are captives. And he's reading into it and he has this expectation. Yeah, I hear you're doing all these miracles. And now he's going to hear the word that the gospel is going out to the poor. So this is all of Isaiah 61. But yet I'm still here and I'm still in prison. Hey, you two guys, come here. When you go to see Jesus, ask him this question. Are you the one... Or should we be looking for somebody else? But we have to remember who is John. Remember at the time, right, Jesus was becoming the talk of the town. He was growing throughout all Judea. John was this guy who said, I must become less so he can become more, and that is what's taking place. While John himself is more or less rotting away in prison, And ultimately, we know the outcome for John. John will never see daylight out of the prison again. He will be beheaded and martyred for his faith and his messenger of who he is. But who really is John? Jesus is going to answer this for us in verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, when they'd gone back to tell him Isaiah 61, Jesus began to speak to the crowd concerning John, because everyone knew who John was. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? 
Did you go to see a reed shaken by the wind? Verse 25, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. He's a super prophet. He's the prophet. He is the prophet that you've all been looking for. You see, they would know this. And they weren't going out there to find something else. They weren't going out to find a reed shaken by the wind. In other words, they weren't looking for a frail man shaken by his opinion of the day. They were looking for a guy who was direct, straightforward, straight from the word of God. I just, I just want to hear the truth. I want to go see that guy. They weren't looking for a man dressed in soft clothing. No, they were looking for a guy who was being served by his servants. They were looking for a guy who would be in the wilderness who's living off the land. They're looking for a specific person. Did you go out there to see a prophet? Yes, a prophet. More than a prophet. I ask you the question, who's the last prophet of the Old Testament? John the Baptist. You see, he's the one that was prophesied about. He's the one that was spoken that would come and he would clear a way for the Lord. We're looking for that prophet because when that prophet shows up, the Messiah is right behind him. We're looking for that prophet. In verse 27, he says, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. He's quoting Malachi 3.1, which says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is what they knew. And if the, and if the messenger is here, then we're going to go and see if we can see the Messiah with him. They were there to see Jesus, but they had to get to him through the prophet. You see, John didn't have the benefit that we have today. He didn't have the whole 66 books of the Bible. He was living his life in accordance to the Old Testament. And the New Testament had not yet been published and distributed, but Jesus is here, the Messiah is here, and John the Baptist is the one, he's the one who's heralding that the King of Kings is here, the Lord of Lords is here. For he's the prophet, the one that Malachi prophesied about. John the Baptist is the prophet who is prophesied about. And Jesus is saying very clearly, I am the one, and you need not look for any other. But Jesus is going to speak so highly of John. Look at it in verse 28. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Of all the people born of women, this is the greatest one. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God 
is greater than John, greater than he. You see, this isn't talking about position or stature. This is talking about the greater blessing. As far as people born of a woman, John's the greatest blessing that there's ever been. As far as the least of these, they are even more blessed because they have so much more of a picture and an answer of what's going on. He's speaking so highly of them. But what he says here in 29 is greater than he. In 29, he says, when all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just. They declared God just. We'll come back to that. Having been baptized by the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected what? The purpose of God for themselves. In other words, they're exchanging their own ideas, their own visions, their own expectations in replacement of the purpose of God. They're not looking for God's purpose. They're looking for theirs. Mainly because none of them were baptized by John. They're feeling like, wait a second, if I wasn't baptized by John, then maybe I don't have the right thing. That can't possibly be true. I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. I'm the most important thing. John the Baptist is the greatest because he's the prophet. He is the prophet that the Old Testament promised. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom is greater than he. I'm gonna get back to verse 29 where it says they declared God just. I'm gonna come to that at the end. But hold that thought of justification or justified in your mind. The Pharisees here are missing the point. They're missing repentance and faith. They're missing repentance and faith. They don't accept John the Baptist from Malachi 3. And therefore, they don't accept Jesus as the one to follow. And they're missing this idea of repentance and faith. John the Baptist is the prophesied prophet and Jesus is the anointed one promised in Isaiah 61. But who exactly are the least in the kingdom? Look, if you will, at Matthew 25, 35 through 40. Here we have, in the book of Matthew, it says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous are gonna answer and saying to the Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick in prison and visit you? And the king, Jesus, will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. We're the least. But do you see Thomas's message from last week? If in your compassion, when you see someone hungry and you don't give them food, then you're not showing compassion. If when you see someone who's thirsty and you don't give them a drink, 
you are not showing compassion. When you see a stranger, you welcome them or you're not showing compassion. If you're naked and clothe them, you're showing compassion. If you're sick and you visit them, it's showing compassion. If they're in prison and you come to visit them, that's compassion. That's what we're called to as Christians is to be the feet and the hands of Jesus Christ, to show the compassion of the gospel in, in fact, our deeds. But the greatest of these here is those who serve it, though, for the glory of Christ. You see, that's where he applies it. Jesus applies it. You did it to me. When you ignored these people, you did it to Jesus. When you fulfilled with compassion these people, you did it to Jesus. It's always to the glory of Christ. What's probably most surprising about the least of these in our service is ultimately not to the poor, not to the disenfranchised, not to the imprisoned, not to the naked, not to the ashamed, not to the drunkard. It's not to any of those people. It's to the glory of Jesus Christ. Because if we do it for them, we do it for him. We serve the most high God to the glory of Jesus himself. But how much I become consumed and I fail to meet these service opportunities. Thomas spoke about how Jesus modeled compassion for the people and the people that are always in our 100 square feet But what do, what do we do? Why do we walk past them? Why do we not take the time to share the gospel? Are we so busy that the gospel isn't the most important thing in that moment? Man, we forget Ephesians 4.32, which tells us to be kind to one another, to be tenderhearted or empathetic, and to forgive, right? How Christ has forgiven you. Man, I walk past that all the time. Thomas, when he spoke, he says, your heart cannot go out to someone and do nothing. It's not compassion. It's the same here that just as you cannot proclaim your faith in Christ and do nothing. You can't stand there and say, I believe, but not act. Look at what he says next. 31. He says, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? Listen to his example. They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. He's talking about this place where kids may gather, kids may uh, go to the mall and they play games and they have fun and uh, as a kid growing up, we would play kickball or baseball in our street, and we'd have to take timeouts before traffic would run us over. It says, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. You see, these childhood games might seem odd to us in our contemporary time. In fact, any outdoor plane might seem odd to us in these days. But apparently, it was common in this era for children to play wedding and to play funeral. To reenact a wedding with cheer 
and joy and to play music and to dance or to play funeral and to walk alongside and mourn the loss of a loved one, to play funeral. Jesus is gonna show us in the following verses that the people of that time, maybe especially those in power, the Pharisees and the lawyers, complained about both John the Baptist and Jesus. And they're complaining about them because they're not playing as prophet or as Messiah the way they expect them to play prophet or Messiah. But what did you go out to the wilderness to see? What did you expect? Did you expect what my word says or did you expect something different and bigger? That John the Baptist wouldn't have been this weird guy who lived in the wilderness and ate bugs and grass and all kinds of things. Were you expecting something different? Were you searching for a king? Were you searching for a softly dressed man? Were you looking for a guy who was wishy-washy and could be blown this way or that way because he's just a frail reed? Or were you actually looking for the prophet, the one that was promised, so that you could see not only the prophet but the coming Messiah? The Pharisees and the tax collectors, or Pharisees and and the lawyers and the sinners of that time were not looking For that, they were looking for their expectation. The point is that no matter what you see, some people are always going to demand the opposite. Simply out of their hard-headed, hard-hearted resistance to the word of God. The higher the view of our God, the better picture we have of the person of Jesus Christ. But sometimes we play our own childhood games. You see, God came into our lives and he gave us his son. And maybe we danced over the music of the celebration of the new bride, the new bride member. But maybe sometimes when we see and witness our friends, our family, our closest people who don't have any relationship with Jesus Christ, we fail to mourn for they are dead in their trespasses. We continue to think that maybe someone else will come and share the gospel with them. We come and think that, that maybe I should just be quiet. I don't want to offend anyone. Blessed are those who are not offended by the Messiah. Man, this is challenging for me. We say we believe, but we complain about our circumstances. Is not the God who is over this one over the other? Ecclesiastes 7.14, that wisdom, it tells us when times are good, be happy. When times are bad, remember the God who made the one made the other as well. Do you understand that God is orchestrating his plan, his purpose, his everything in your life is to the glory of Jesus Christ? He says in verse 33, he says, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say he has a demon and the son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend to tax collectors and sinners. And he closes with this statement, he says, yet wisdom is justified by all of her children. 
What does he mean by this? I get it that people look at Jesus and say, ah, he was just, he was just a dude. Or they look at John the Baptist and say, he was just a crazy man who lived in the wilderness. And they miss the entire point of God's word. But here Jesus describes the sinners and the tax collectors as wisdom's children. They are children in that they follow the way of wisdom compared to the religious leaders whom Jesus calls the children of the devil in John 8, 44. Wisdom has told them to repent of their sins and to have faith. Wisdom here is presented as a personification of right thinking. As in Proverbs, Proverbs 1, 7, which tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And what what does that do? Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Earlier we dealt with this aspect of being just, that the tax collectors and the sinners referred to Jesus as just or as God as just. The term justified in the sense of being proven correct, being accurate. The same way that it's declared in Luke 7, 29, they, the tax collectors and the sinners, declared God just. In other words, he's right. He's the Messiah. John's the prophet. The choice of those who listen and accept God's purpose, hear me on this, God's purpose for them will demonstrate the truth of his message. A person who is living their life for the purpose of God will demonstrate the word of God. If you look at the parallel of this verse in Matthew eleven nineteen, it says the son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look at him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom here is justified by what? Her deeds, not by children. It's interesting. Matthew's account of Jesus, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds, right, is using two separate nouns, children and deeds. They represent the aspect of a full result, It's the fullness of the message. It's the whole counsel of God in that what he's saying is that the followers are the children and the act of repentance and faith are their deeds. Brothers and sisters, I I want you to hear me on this. There's only one requirement of the gospel. Just one. There's only one requirement. Repentance and faith. That's the requirement, that I renew my thinking so that I go a different way than that of the world, to be not of this world, but to be transformed through the renewing of my my mind so that when the test in life comes, I know how to pass the test. I know what is the will of God, what is perfect and acceptable, and that which brings glory to Jesus Christ and to Christ alone. But some of you might be thinking, yeah, Jeff, but... But obedience, there's also obedience. It's not just repentance and faith, but then there's obedience. Obedience is not what the gospel requires. 
There is no requirement in the gospel for obedience. The gospel produces obedience. It never works the other way around. I'm never like the Pharisees and the scribes where I'm obedient and that should produce compassion. No, I accept the gospel with repentance and faith and it compels obedience. If the gospel were to require obedience, then we would not be the least of these. We would be the Pharisees who rejected, as they said, the purposes of God for themselves. It's not about our obedience, but the gospel will propel it. Don't let your false expectations, your doubt at time to time in Jesus, who is the one, and don't think that we have to be looking for anybody else. But so what? How do we know with certainty? How do we know with absolute certainty? Point one, in our text today, it is clearly articulating to us that Jesus is the one. It's telling us that not only is John the greatest because he is the prophet, but Jesus is absolutely the Messiah and is the one. Point two, we are to trust the plans of God. This is probably one of the most difficult aspects of our life, to truly trust the plan of God. We wrestle with things on a simple. The Bible talks about how we, we plan to go here or there to do this or that, to make business and success and all these different things, but it really matters what the will of God is. How do we make our supplications known to God with our palms wide open and saying, but your will be done? And truly believe that. To put that in our mind and to realize that I'm in control of nothing. And that every day of my life is controlled by a sovereign God who has empowered me and has given me the gift of being the ambassador of the hundred square feet around me. And my sole singular purpose is to bring glory to the person of Jesus Christ. To repent and take faith. And tomorrow morning I will repent and take faith. This isn't about my salvation, this is about my sanctification. Do I truly trust God or am I trying to live a life pleasing to him? God is not calling you to live a life pleasing to him. God is most pleased with you when you are most trusting of him. To depend upon him and to let his word compel action of compassion and truth and to share the gospel. To do this in step three, in point three is to step out in faith and in faith alone. It's not faith plus my works makes me right. It is faith alone that will compel the good works. Don't miss the opportunity that is put before you every single moment of every day to minister and love those people that are around you. Don't miss the opportunity to die to your desire and let his will be done. It's his outcome. Pastor Kevin, as he's encouraging these small groups, he keeps giving these two phrases where he talks about live on mission and engage in the community. Live on mission, love God, love people, make disciples, equip people to follow Jesus Christ. 
evangelize the lost, share the gospel with those who need it. But don't forget to dance when they come to know Christ at the wedding. And don't forget to mourn when they remain dead in their trespasses. But to live our lives to the purpose and the glory of him because he is the one, he is God, and he alone is the one who answers all of life's difficulties. Oh, how I pray that we would come to know Christ in the beauty and the loveliness of this, that he is the one that was sent, he is the Messiah, and he is our everything. Our Father and our God, Lord, we love you. We know that you have called us to trust you. We know that you are most pleased with us when we are most trusting of you. But Lord, forgive us in our expectations. Forgive us in our doubts. Restore us, Lord, unto you, that we would walk in faith, that we would walk in repentance. For we are perfect and holy before you because of the works and the righteousness of your son. Christ's name we pray, amen. Brothers and sisters, he is worthy of all of our praise. He is the one, and we need not look for any other. Jesus is the one, right? Jesus is the one who came and lived a perfect life, who died the death that we deserved, who rose from the dead, who even 40 days later ascended right before everybody to the right hand of God the Father where he is making intercession and prayer for you right here today. If your faith isn't in him, then I mourn that you do not yet know Christ. But if you are of Christ, you should dance. You should be the one who celebrates this relationship with Christ day in and day out. And in your mourning of those who are lost, you would be so bold, not ashamed of him, but that you would share the gospel of Jesus Christ, how Christ has changed you and made his life in you. Show yourself by your compassion. Be the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ. Our Father and our God, Lord, go with us. Be in our hearts that we would be faithful ambassadors of the 100 square feet around us, that Lord, you and you alone would be glorified by what we say, by what we do. May our expectations be wholeheartedly trusting in your plan, your purpose, not ours. But help us, Lord, when we are not in a good place. Help us to fall to our knees and to pray into you that your will would be done. Fill us with your grace and mercy as we go, Lord, to your glory. Amen. Our prayer warriors are down here. The people that would love to come alongside and pray for you. Our follow Jesus uh, people are back at the booth. And if you don't know Christ or you want to know, what, well, how do I really get to know the beauty of Christ this way? Go talk to them. Or come talk to me or Thomas or Bob or Kevin or any one of the pastors just to come and say, I want to know the beauty of Jesus Christ. Let us help you. Let us come alongside. Minister to one another. God bless you. I love you. We'll see you next week. 